So we've been here three weeks now. My family's been here three weeks. And uh, we, we've been getting to know Gainesville people, and I've been asking. There's been one question for sure that Casey and I asked people. Uh, where's the good food, food at? Like, we, wanna know, we are food people. We want to know where the good food is. So we've been trying some different restaurants. Uh, but we were talking to the Tillmans, actually, at Connect Group this past week, Josh and Joanna Tillman. And uh, they told us about this place, uh, which we'd heard of, but this place called Halo Donuts that serves a, oh, <laughs> there's like a visceral, oh, yeah, uh, that serves potato donuts. Guys, I come from Atlanta. I've, n- I've never heard those two things combined together. And so I asked Josh and Josh, I'm like, okay, what is a potato donut? And so they explained kind of the process of it. And they're like, it's a bit more dense, so be ready and all this stuff. So I said, okay, that's what it is. How do I get one? And they said, well, you're going to want to go to Tower Road. There's a, there's a place there you can get Halo Donuts. So yesterday, yesterday morning, uh, first of all, I got roped into one of the hardest workouts I've done in a very long time. Some of you were there. And after that, instead of drinking muscle milk or some kind of recovery drink, um, I took my family to Halo Donuts, which, whatever, don't judge me. Uh, carbs are good after working out. So uh, we went there and tried it. And Guys, it was great. I, I think we got blueberry lemon and honey dipped. I don't know. It seems like you couldn't go wrong at Halo Donuts. It was amazing. But I asked Josh and Joanna two questions. What is it? What is a potato donut? And how do I get it? Well, this morning, Paul is going to talk about something called spiritual wisdom or godly wisdom, mature wisdom. And I want to ask those same two questions. What is spiritual wisdom and how do we get it? What is spiritual wisdom? How do we get it? I want to catch you up to speed on kind of where we've been so far in 1 Corinthians, especially if this is your first Sunday here. Uh, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he is saying, uh, you you know, he had had some initial words, but then he dives right into it and says, you guys are divided, and you you are stealing glory from Christ because you're not being united like Christ would want you to be. He hits that head on. And then from there, last week's passage, he's talking to the Jews and the Greeks who were enamored with signs and wonders and also the the wisdom of the world. And he goes, guys, don't focus on those things. Focus on Jesus and boast in him alone. And this morning, what Paul is going to do is he's actually going to take us deeper down that path of people that were enamored with worldly wisdom. And he says, I'm going to show you a different kind of wisdom, a spiritual wisdom. And this is what you want. This is what you want to grow in. And so what is spiritual wisdom? How do we get it? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. And I'd love to just read for us these first five verses. Paul says this, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. So Paul says, when I came to you. We can actually read about uh, the story of Paul going to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And when he, he went there, after, after coming from Athens, he goes to the synagogues to talk to the, to the Jews and the Greeks and convince them of Christ but he faces this resistance from them. And then in Acts 18, or, uh, Paul says, your blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. But the Lord came to Paul in a night vision and said, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. 
So Paul stays there for a year and a half. In Acts 18.8, I think it tells us that many Corinthians were uh, saved, they believed, and were baptized. But even as, as the church was getting started and established, Paul was facing resistance from these people. And it was a resistance because they were enamored with the things of, of culture. They were enamored with speech, with language, with wisdom. So when Paul came, what did he come with? Well, did he come with more speech, more language, more wisdom? No, because he knows that would have fed right into the problem that they were already dealing with. So what did Paul come with? What did he do instead? Well, verse 3 tells us he came in weakness and fear and much trembling. That was his posture. It was a posture of humility. Now, when you think of the Apostle Paul, likely you think of a guy who's strong, maybe holding a sword with the Bible in the other hand or whatever. And in a lot of ways, you read First and Second Corinthians, and yeah, he was bold in his letters, but his physical appearance was, was weak. And his speaking actually wasn't that impressive. So he says, I, I came to you in weakness and humility. That was his posture. But then what was his message? Verse two, I love this, circle this one. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He came to announce the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And he didn't use fancy words, he just simply unpacked the beauty of the cross. Now, if, if that was all that Paul wanted to talk to the Corinthians about, I think we would do an injustice to not talk about that this morning. Christ and him crucified, what does that mean? Likely, if you're here this morning, you have heard that there was a person by the name of Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and died on a cross. And I just want to ask a simple question, what happened on that cross? When Jesus hung there on that cross, what, what was happening? What happened? I think there's three things that come to mind to me. The first is the physical pain of the cross. I mean, you, you likely know this, but crucifixion was one of the most horrible forms of execution that the Romans could have thought up of in that day. Jesus was flogged nearly to death. He was pinned and nailed to a cross and had to fight for every breath. Guys, let's be honest. None of us can, can imagine that kind of pain in our life, that physical pain. But it, but it actually didn't end there. I think as a kid, I just grew up and I, I constantly thought about the physical pain of the cross, which is true and real. Jesus was a physical person who died and had physical pain. But, but beyond that, on that cross, he was abandoned. Not, not only by his disciples, who he loved, poured his life out to, abandoned him. Not only his disciples, but his father, who turned his face away. And you go, why would a loving father turn his face away from his only son? And the answer is because of what had to happen on that cross. I would argue the most intense thing, the worst thing that happened to Jesus on that cross was him bearing the wrath of God. Why? Why did Jesus need to do that? Well, the answer to that question is because people like you and me, all humankind, we have sin flowing through our veins. You don't have to teach a two-year-old how to be naughty and sin. It's just, it's just in us, right? We are lovers of self and not lovers of God. And like guilty prisoners before a judge, we deserve punishment. But the good news of the gospel 
is that Jesus voluntarily went to the cross and absorbed the wrath of God in our place. Sin deserved punishment. Sin deserved God's wrath, and Jesus absorbed that for us. At the cross, the fury of God's wrath was unleashed on Jesus Christ. So if you ask me what happened on the cross, I'd maybe sum it up in this sentence. Jesus faced the weight of millions of sins alone as God the Father poured out his wrath on his son. That's what happened on the cross. And and none of us will ever know the intensity of what happened in that moment because Jesus, as he's facing the wrath of God, if any one of us faced the wrath of God for even an instant, it would lead to tremendous fear and probably immediate death, right? But it wasn't just an instant for Jesus on the cross. It was hour after hour hanging there, absorbing what we deserved until it was finished. But here's the craziest part of the cross to me. It's that he had you and me in mind the whole time. He did it out of love. He knows the sins that we have already committed and the sins we will commit. And he still chose to hang for us. How do I know that? Because he stayed on that cross until it was finished. That's the love of our Savior. But he didn't stay in that grave, did he? He rose from the grave three days later, and he pursues us with his love. And and some of you, you might be hearing this for the very first time. And if that's true of you, I want to ask you a question that Elizabeth Elliot asked years ago. She asked this. Those hands that keep a million worlds from spinning into oblivion were nailed motionless to a cross for us. Can you trust him? I would plead with you this morning to trust him. I have full confidence you can trust him. Put your faith and trust in Jesus today. Let today be the day of salvation. This is the message that Paul preached, Christ crucified. Now, some of you hear that this morning and you go, Jordan, that's great. I don't know if you were here last week. Paul actually preached that last week. We actually, we already hit the gospel last week. And, and I think um, some of us can have this mindset where we go, yeah, the cross is great, but, but let's move to deeper things. Let's go to Christianity 202. Let's get into the, to the deeper waters of things. And Christian, this is what I want to say as clearly as I can this morning. The cross, the gospel, is not Christianity 101 for believers. The cross is the air that we breathe. It is everything. The the deeper we go in our relationship with Jesus, the deeper we go in our understanding and love for the cross. That, That is why Paul decided to preach nothing to the Corinthians except Christ and him crucified, because he knows that our fickle hearts will go, all over the place, chasing this thing or that thing. And the cross is our plumb line that keeps us centered. And that is why every preacher that gets on this stage is going to get up here and talk about Jesus, is going to get up here and preach Christ crucified. Lord, help us if we don't. I love how Charles Spurgeon put this. He goes, the motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Man, I love that. (laughs) I love that. But here's the deal. You do not have to stand up here like me right now and preach a 35-minute monologue sermon to preach Christ crucified. Actually, if you go back to verses 4 and 5, Paul says, you know, my speech and preaching... 
They're not with persuasive words of wisdom, but the, the power of God, a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul didn't use fancy words and worldly wisdom to convince them. He simply gave them the clear message of the cross, knowing it was the only path to salvation. He didn't, he didn't want to preach out of human effort and, and manipulate their minds and emotions because he knew if he did that, their, their foundation would crumble the moment he left or the moment those emotions faded away. But rather, Paul wanted them to depend on the power of God, which is the foundation for their salvation. Paul preached Christ crucified and trusted in God to do the work. And Acts 18 tells us that many were saved. Paul came in weakness and humility, but God used that guy to turn Corinth upside down. Not because Paul was impressive, but because the message had power. Here's the deal. Once people find life in Christ, they are given spiritual wisdom. Okay, so let's, let's get into what we want to, I mean, that's what we talked about this morning, but let's, let's talk about spiritual wisdom. What is it? Paul's going to talk about it a lot in this passage. What is it and how do we get it? Let's go to verse 6. It says, We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So if you were here last week, that might sound a little confusing. You go, man, last week, Paul was saying that wisdom is actually foolishness, but now you're saying wisdom is good. Well, what Paul is doing here is he's not throwing all wisdom out the window. He's saying there is a kind of wisdom that is worth pursuing and growing in. It's this spiritual wisdom. It's not from smart and powerful rulers or teachers that and all, their, all of their efforts and it, it all comes to nothing. No, he's saying there is a spiritual wisdom. So what's the difference between worldly and spiritual wisdom? Well, at the crux of it, worldly wisdom is from people. Spiritual wisdom is from God. Worldly wisdom makes you look more like the world. Spiritual wisdom makes you look more like Christ. And at the foundation of spiritual wisdom, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, is Christ crucified. The hidden wisdom, the mystery revealed And that's what the rulers of the age were blinded to in verse 8. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put Jesus on that cross. But but they did put him on that cross. He died the death we should have died, and then he rose from the grave victoriously, and now the free gift of salvation is offered. And when anyone puts their trust in Christ, their eyes have been opened, and they submit to Jesus, it opens the gates to this thing called spiritual wisdom. It is a wealth of spiritual knowledge and wisdom that is now open to you. But I will say this. Christian, just know this. Um, spiritual wisdom looks odd to the outside world. It doesn't make sense. Especially when we start living it out. People will look at you and go, why in the world would you give money away when you could save and invest it or spend it on something else? Why would you care about the needs of others more than yourself? Why do you care about life after death so much. It doesn't make sense. It's confusing. But if you are in Christ, you understand that this spiritual wisdom is a beautiful gift from the Lord. So spiritual wisdom, what is it? It has its foundation in Christ crucified. It comes from God and not the world. And it makes us look more like Jesus. That's what it is. 
Now, how do we get it? Let's go to verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now, God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we've not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit, because it is foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it, since it is evaluated spiritually. How do we get the spiritual wisdom? I've already hinted at this, but the only way is by humbling ourselves and submitting to Jesus Christ. But when you do that, you receive the Holy Spirit. And then now you have access to the spiritual wisdom that searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, this is where I want to slow down a bit. Because you start talking about the Holy Spirit and people just start getting confused. This is the stuff of Christianity that when people hear it, they go, yeah, that's what makes Christianity feel just as believable as like Star Wars. <laughs> like the Holy Spirit, what are, you, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. And so although there can be some confusion around this, what I believe Paul is doing here is what I want, and what I want to do with us this morning is hopefully bring a lot of cl clarity to where there is confusion. So I'm going to pull from this passage. I'm also going to pull from John 14 through 16. Maybe read that this week. Probably the most comprehensive passage we know about the Holy Spirit, who he is, and what he, what he does. But I want to answer two questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? What's he do? So who is the Holy Spirit? First, he is a person. This is important. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not the wind. He's not a ghost on Scooby-Doo. He's not the force in Star Wars. No, he's not an immaterial force. He's not an it. He is a he person. Go to verse 12. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God. Not spirit that comes from God as if it's some kind of force. No, he is a person who is delighted. He is a person who is grieved. He is a person who is with us and for us. He is not a genie in a bottle that we make transactions with or, or some kind of force that we manipulate. He is a person we commune with. We are called to walk with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. He's a person. But on top of that, and I want to say this as clearly as I can this morning, he is God. He is God. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Maybe you've heard that before. The Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit is God. Now, I could do a, we could probably do a whole sermon series on this, guys, but try, I'm going to try and boil it down. We worship a God who is three in one. We call it the Holy Trinity. One God, three distinct persons. One essence, three in person. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even if you understand that, I, I think it's also worth me just saying, the Holy Spirit is no less than God than the Father and the Son, he is worth all glory, honor, praise, and adoration, same as the Father and Son. This is the God we worship, three in one. Now, you hear that, and you might go, well, how does that work? Three in one, one in three, well, well give me the perfect illustration for that. And I go, good luck, you know. 
The Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity rather, because it, it's just one of those things that our human brains will never be able to fully wrap our minds around. There will be a mystery to it. And, so, and people don't like that, right? But I would say this, just because we don't have a full understanding of something doesn't mean it's not true or we can't fully enjoy it. Let me give you an example. We, uh, we set up our TV in our new place, and I don't know how that didn't get demolished in our Penske truck drive down or whatever, but it works. And uh, I have, guys, I have no idea how a TV works. All I know is I push the button and somehow LED lights pop on, and I push another button and it gives me what I want. Somehow YouTube TV, I click Florida Gators and it records all of those things. Or um, the three shows, I, want. I don't know what black magic they use to go like, oh, here's everything you need. I don't understand how a TV works. But that doesn't mean it's not a TV that works and that I can still enjoy it, right? If you had a friend that came over and you sat down to watch TV and he goes, whoa, 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 I, ooh, I actually don't watch TV. Um, I'm waiting until I fully understand TVs and I'm, I'm getting there uh, before I actually watch it. If that's your friend, I'd go, you might need to find new friends. That's a little odd. <laughs> um, but that would be weird, right? I'm just saying, it, it, it's, you're going to have a hard time living a life where you reject everything you can't fully explain. But I will say this, so there's that, sure. But I will say this, God has given us his holy scripture. We can know who our God is. We can know, and we will continue to know him better and better forever. The Bible is very clear that there are different works ascribed to each person in the Trinity. The Father didn't die on the cross, the Son did. The Holy Spirit doesn't send the Father, the Father sends the Spirit. And so if, if these three have different roles, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? So if that's who he is, person, God, what does the Holy Spirit do? Go back to verse 12. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us. Again, guys, we could spend a lot of time here. Go to John 14 through 16 if you want more. But I'm just going to stick to our passage and go, what does our passage tell us about what the Holy Spirit does? And the first is this, he gives life. When someone puts their faith and trust in Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit doing the work. He is the one we receive. We've not received the spirit of the world, but the Holy Spirit who comes from God. That is who we have received. He gives us new life and a new heart. So if anyone is saved, it is only by the work of the Spirit, which, guys, that should be so comforting to us. It is not on our shoulders to bring someone from spiritual death to life. Are we called to preach Christ crucified? Absolutely, and we will do it. But it's not on our shoulders. It is the work of God through his spirit that brings people from spiritual death to life. He is the one we receive, and he is the one who gives us the spiritual wisdom, which dives into our second point, right? So he gives us life, but he also, I'm gonna use a fancy word here, illuminates truth. So the spirit doesn't come once, give us life, and then walk away. No, he is with us, and he is in us. He is giving us a life that blossoms as we continue to grow in knowing truth. Now, I use the word illuminate. That is a, a churchy way of saying the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to truth. The cross makes sense. The, the Bible begins to click. We begin to understand things. And over time, like a, like a dimmer switch in a dark room, we begin to see things that we had not seen before. Everything becomes more clear. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So this happens in our lives personally, but I would also say if you zoom out and look at the Bible as a whole, this actually also happens in a very big way between the Old and New Testament. Go to verse 9. This is interesting. This is Isaiah writing, Isaiah 64, 4. That's what Paul's quoting. But as it is written, Isaiah says this, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. So in the Old Testament times, in the times of Isaiah, mysteries were kept for men, even prophets of God. But now that has all changed. Why? Because of the cross. The the mystery has been revealed. We are on the other side of the cross, and now the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and ears to comprehend the work of what Jesus has done for us. That's what verse 12, the second half, means. But, But the Spirit who comes from God so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. So I was, um, I did watch, uh, you know, a good chunk of the game last night, and I won't talk about it, I won't pick it open wounds, but I, I was watching the game, and I noticed they have these huge lights. I don't know if they rent them out or how that works, but there's these huge lights that surround the stadium. And, um, you know, as I was watching the game, you know what I didn't see? As, as ESPN camera was zooming across the, the crowd, I didn't see the crowd all standing and looking at the lights. That would have been odd, right? Like people across the nation would go, people in Gainesville are taking crazy pills. I don't, what, you know, what, what would, why would you be doing that? The reason nobody's doing that is because everything's looking at the field, the exact thing that the light is pointing towards. So, so people don't look at the light, they look at whatever the light is pointed towards. Guys, you have to understand one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit is to shine a bright light on Jesus Christ. That is his work. I'll prove it to you. Let's go to John 16. John 16, 13 through 14 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So there you go. Illuminates the truth for us. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will, listen to this. Jesus is talking. He's saying, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me because he will take you from what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit loves glorifying and shining a bright light on Jesus Christ and the cross. The the Spirit is sent by the Father and Son to make visible what was not visible, to shine a bright light into the dark. The, The people in the stadium last night were facing the field and the lights were behind and above them shining on the game. And in the same way, the Spirit kind of stands behind us and shines a bright light on Jesus Christ who is standing in front of us with his arms open wide. The the Spirit's posture is not look at me, it's look at him. The Spirit says, look at the bloody cross. Look at the one who laid down his life. Look at the nail-scarred hands. Look at the one who looks at you with love in his eyes. That is the work of the Spirit. So the Spirit gives us life, we receive him, and then he illuminates truth, mostly Jesus Christ. And finally, he gives us the mind of Christ. Third thing, gives us the mind of Christ. Let's read these last two verses. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Pretty straightforward and clear, right? No, that's a little, I remember first reading that. I'm like, what does that mean, you know? I, I was reading through it. Very, very simply, what it, 
What, what these two verses are saying is that a person that is guided by the Spirit can evaluate everything. He has spiritual wisdom, and he can discern and make intelligent spiritual decisions. But on the flip side, any person without the Holy Spirit doesn't have spiritual wisdom. Therefore, they cannot evaluate or judge or make spiritual judgments on the person who has the Spirit. In verse 16, Paul, Paul quotes again Isaiah, who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him. I think what Paul's getting at is like, hey, you Corinthians who don't have the Spirit but are enamored with signs and wonders, Paul's like, you can't judge me spiritually because you don't have the Spirit. So that's kind of maybe what those two verses are getting at. But I just want to dial into that last sentence here. But we have the mind of Christ. We have been saved. We have been united with Christ. And part of that is being given the mind of Christ through the Spirit. The problem with the Corinthian church is that they were displaying more of a mind of the world than they were a mind of Christ. Paul's saying, Use it. you've accepted Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, but you're divided. That's not the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is unified. What the Holy Spirit does is he gets our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus. It becomes less self-centered and more Christ-centered. A mind of Christ that chooses the right heart posture, a heart posture of humility, of self-forgetfulness, not pride, of love, not hate. Christian, we have not received a spirit of the world, but a spirit, the spirit of God. And I just want to ask the, the simple question this morning, in what ways in your life are you acting and having more of a mind of the world than you are the mind of Christ? I'll, I'll just share personally for me real quick. Um, Casey and I were driving around Gainesville a couple weeks ago now, and we, neither one of us had read our Bibles that morning, so she opened up 1 Corinthians 13, and it's like, let's read this passage, and you know, that's the love is patient, love is kind, you hear that at weddings. And uh, we just kind of went through and said, what are areas that we really need to grow in? And I had four that I quickly picked out, and um, I said, yep, I think it's um, patient, kind, irritable, self-seeking. I think those are the four I'm really struggling with right now in this season of life. I get, I get frustrated and impatient when, when Casey asks me to do something that I don't want to do. <laughs> it's just hard for me. Uh, I get irritable when our 10-month-old son won't stop crying. Because that is like one of the most sanctifying things in the world. I don't, that has to be a tactic in interrogation rooms, right? Like, I don't know, this guy's not talking. Just bring in the hungry baby. It'll, it'll break any grown man. You know, so, for me, it's just, ah, it just makes me irritable. But then I'm also self-seeking. On my day off, like yesterday, I just want to watch college football or watch the shows I want to watch. I don't want to engage my family, serve them, and love them like Christ would. That, that's not a mind of Christ. That is more a mind of the world. And I need to repent. I need to change the way I think of those things. I need the Holy Spirit to help mold my mind and heart to be more like Christ. So what is it for you? What areas in your life have you the, the mind or the actions that looks more like the world and less like Christ? Do you have a love for God's word? Man, Jesus had a love for God's word, always quoting scripture. Do you long to commune with God through prayer? Jesus was always praying to his father. Do you love things of the world or things of God? Are you living to glorify God or living to enjoy yourself? The only way we can walk in this path of Christ, this mind of Christ, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. My whole big idea for this morning is pretty simple. The Holy Spirit, what he does is he opens our eyes to truth, and he gives us the mind of Christ. And I want to close by sharing a bit of a story of 
a student in our midst uh, here at Salt Company, Salt Church, who recently put his faith and trust in Jesus. And he is now experiencing these things that we were, that were just reading about. And I asked him to just kind of share the things that's going on in his life. And, and this is what he said. He said, firstly, the, the Bible finally makes sense. I love that. The Bible finally makes sense. And it's almost like he's speaking directly to me instead of just meaningless words as it was before. He goes, the second way God has changed me is how I viewed my previous life. I used to be a party animal going out four to five times a week, completely addicted to that lifestyle since about 16 or so. He says, after I accepted God in my life, he helped me realize how empty that is and and how I was trying desperately to find happiness and quick fixes but instead was just digging a deeper hole for myself. Now, although I'm still slightly attracted to that lifestyle, I appreciate the honesty, I no longer feel that incessant drive for that in my life. And lastly, because God is in my life, I honestly don't get depressed or down hardly ever. I remember waking up after nights out feeling horrible and pretty disgusted with myself, but then drink it off and the next, like the next day and repeat. But he says, now God has given me an awesome sense of peace and real happiness. Months ago, preaching didn't land with them. It didn't make sense. The Bible didn't make any sense. Just words. God saved him through the Holy Spirit by his eyes being opened to Christ crucified. And now what's happening? Everything's making sense. The Holy Spirit has opened his eyes to truth. But beyond that, he has been given a mind of Christ. He's like, I don't know how to fully understand, but I was living this way, but now I'm living this way. He's walking a path of holiness, not perfectly, but he's heading that direction by the power of the Spirit being given the mind of Christ. He is growing, ultimately, in spiritual wisdom. Why? It's because he heard Christ crucified and the Spirit turned the lights on. And all I want to say this morning is, what an incredible God we serve that he would do that in any of our lives. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are so good to us that you went to that cross in our place. Not only the physical pain, the abandonment, but you bearing the wrath of God in our place. What we deserve, you took. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, for the cross and what it means. But Holy Spirit, we also thank you that you open our eyes to see those things, to see Jesus And we, every day, get the opportunity to see him as more and more beautiful, as he already is, more and more glorious. So Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. Father, we thank you for sending your son. And Spirit, we thank you for opening our eyes to truth, those that have put their trust in Christ. And for those that have not, I I just pray that today would be the day of salvation. That Spirit, you would open their eyes and that Jesus, you would become the center of their life, their everything, their Lord and Savior. And we know that that is only possible because you went to that bloody cross on our behalf. So we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.